Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the In Context and Culture podcast. Thank you once again for joining us. We are in Revelation chapter six. For a while there, it seemed like we were moving pretty slowly through the book, and you've noticed hopefully that for the last three weeks, we have been in different chapters each week. And we find ourselves in Revelation chapter six this week. And, you know, I know many of you are probably listening to this in the car or while you're um, doing some homework or whatever it might be that you're multitasking. I would encourage you for this episode, if you have the time to be able to sit down with your Bible open, we would really encourage you to do that throughout this episode. Um, one commentator said uh, that the Revelation chapter six is where a lot of Christian interpreters um, kind of join hands and a handshake um, to say farewell to one another, only to rejoin in another handshake um, as far as agreeing on what takes place between chapter six until the return of Christ. Right. So this tends to be a place in which the, uh, th- there is kind of the beginning of differing opinions uh, throughout the rest of the book. Um, we were taken into the throne room of heaven in chapter four with John um, as we read uh, um, what John described the throne room to, to look like and um, what the worship was happening around the throne. Then in chapter five, we remained in the throne room um, as far as what's in the Bible where we saw John weeping uh, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. And then of course the hope uh, came and Christ Jesus ascending taking upon uh, um, uh, or give, being given authority and taking the uh, scroll and, and beginning to break open the seals of the scroll as all of heaven thundered in uh, worship for the lamb who is worthy to open the scroll. So now in chapter six, we have this scroll uh, and its seals beginning to be opened. Um, and uh, with each seal, there is a vision given by God to John for what that seal represents. Um, So we're going to walk through the six seals to the best of our ability today. If uh, our, if if what kind of happens is we um, uh, begin to get, you know, take a lot of time walking through this, we might stop at four seals, but we'll see where we get to today. So Corey, would you just like to read it? Any introductory comments you'd like to make other than that? Uh, No, I'll just go ahead and read. And then I've got a few things to, uh, well, yeah, well, before I read, I yeah. think one thing that I think one thing that would be helpful whenever we begin to read this and talk about it is, is that we have just read about the lamb who is worthy because he has conquered, right? The line of Judah has conquered. And so we I think part of what chapter six answers is if if the lamb has conquered, why is there still so much suffering? going on uh why why is there all this pain and uh happening and 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 suffering and all this calamity um and so and i think that's a valid question that the believers will ask is boy if he's really conquered why in the world is all this stuff still happening and so um and you i've talked before uh we're in this already not yet kind of scenario um as believers and so i'll go ahead and read and then we'll kind of jump in Reading in the English Standard Version, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. 
And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed, with, followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with a famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of the fellows of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Hey, well, as we walk through this, I think we're just going to go verse by verse or at least seal by seal. Um, so uh, the first uh, seal, uh, along with the second, third and fourth, um, refer to horses and a rider on those horses. I think that's significant. And then you have a little bit something different, uh, a little bit uh, of something different in uh, the um, uh, fifth seal. Uh, the fifth seal, as we've read, is... Um, uh, a vision of souls under the altar. Uh, they have uh, been faithful unto death. They're martyrs, having given their lives for the Lord, and they cry out to God, how long until you avenge uh, and, um, uh, and bring your justice against the oppressor? Um, sixth seal, of course, it seems like everything is just falling apart during the sixth seal, and people are terrified from the wrath of God, and they hide. So um, I think we're going to probably try to keep the first four somewhat together, even though there's probably quite a few differences in them. So why don't you kind of start with uh, maybe just some different thoughts there are on the first um, horseman. Uh, the, let's just look at the colors real quick. First horseman is white and the horse is white um, and it has come to conquer. A unique word just having been used of Christ, the conquering king. Um, the conquering lamb that was slain. Um, then the second horse is uh, bright red. Um, seems very clearly that while Christ came to bring peace to the earth, this horse and its rider takes peace from the earth, right? Um, it's blood red. Um, and then the third horse and horseman is a black horse. Um, 
and uh, it seems to represent some kind of economic or economic uh, famine or difficulty, um, referring to food and, and finances. And then uh, the fourth horseman uh, is pale, uh, like a grayish, greenish, dark, nasty, pale color, um, and it's death in Hades. So it is really kind of death itself. And so let's just talk about these one at a time. Uh, no one really seems to disagree so much on the second, third, and fourth horsemen, but the first one. Why, Corey, is there disagreement on that first horseman, and what's the disagreement? Well, there's disagreement on, like, the simple fact that, it, that what you said about coming out to conquer. Um like whenever we think about conquering, we've just read all of this stuff about conquering in Revelation and how how the saints will conquer. Um, and so th- some people want to see continuity, that there will be conquering, um, and that will be done by the Lord. Uh, while others see this conquering as they, they, they feel like all four of the horsemen need to, need to be Um, have some continuity with them. And so all of these other horsemen are bringing judgment while, while if, if you look at the first horseman as Christ or a Christ figure or the gospel being proclaimed, it would seem to be uh, discontinuous with the rest of the horsemen. And so one of the, one of the arguments is that this white horse is the gospel proclamation that the gospel will go forth and conquer. And, and all four of these horsemen are going to happen in between the first and second comings of Christ. And so some believe that this is the um, conquering of the gospel, uh, how it will go forth to the nations and it will, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it just as it will not prevail against the church, that gospel proclamation that will go out. And so it was going to, it was going to conquer. While others feel like this, this is generally um, conquerors uh, that have been given authority by God and will go out uh, and, and conquer peoples and nations. Um, I, I think as we're thinking about these horsemen, it's good for us to understand that there is some background in the Old Testament for this, which comes from, from Zechariah 1, where, where God sends out the horsemen um, there because he is angered uh, with the people and, that have come against Jerusalem and he's going to bring judgment. Now, I'll just tell you, whenever I preached this passage, I, I, I took the position that, um, that the white horse was the, was the gospel going forth and it was going to conquer. Uh, but I believe more that I've got into Revelation. I, I'm, I'm not too sure now, like I want to go back and change my mind on that one. And I don't think it has anything I don't think it affects anything as far as um, uh, what I what I proclaimed about the gospel. I think all that's accurate. But if if we want to put all of these together as a symbol of the coming judgment of God, I think it makes more sense that maybe those are people that will go out and conquer nations. And so, um, you know, there's a and there's even a couple of arguments from the gospels because the disciples are asking Jesus, because Jesus talks to them in Matthew 24 about the coming of the end. And, and they ask him when this is going to happen. And, and Jesus is more interested in answering the why and the what for question than he is the when. And so 
if if all of if this is all a picture of God's judgment, it would seem to have more continuity to say that that first uh, white horse would be those that would go out and conquer nations. So, any thoughts on that? Yeah. So, uh, I think when you asked me about this passage like three weeks ago before you preached, or four weeks ago before you preached, I don't remember. If, I don't know if you even remember asking me about it, but um, I I didn't know. Um, I just kind of made mention of some things I had heard from different individuals from Tom Schreiner who had taught about it in a class that I was in um, from uh, uh, one of my favorite authors, of course, George Ladd and, um, and, uh, and all these guys have different opinions. And like you said, uh, your opinion on the white writer in revelation chapter six is um, while important because it's the word of God is I would, I think argue less important than your opinion of the white writer in revelation 19 uh meaning uh revelation 19 is uh by all accounts the return of christ to come and enact final judgment before he um uh um, brings in the new heavens and new earth for believers to dwell with them forever so Mm -hmm. um this is a difficult passage no doubt difficult passage uh the horsemen two three and four most definitely are um uh, a part of tribulation, uh, a part of, uh, the world seeing, um, uh, uh, chaos increasingly. Um, I'm reading lad right now, even as you're talking and I'm going back and forth still, I'm not sure because the truth is, is that it would make logical sense to include another writer with three other writers all mentioned next to each other. It doesn't clearly say, oh, this is definitely Christ with, oh, yeah, just conquest, war. Part of conquest is blood. So you got the right, the bright red horse and people being killed. Um, you got pestilence and you've got economic issues. So it seems like, OK, this is gradually the, the chaos that happens in war and famine and um, and death. Right. Um, and then I go back to the fact of, okay, well, why, why is it a white horse? What's the significance of it being a white horse? Every time white is mentioned, I think every time white is mentioned in Revelation, it always references uh, Jesus or his people and purity. I mean, so I'm just looking at a list here. Um, the exalted Christ has hair white as wool. The faithful receive a white stone with a new name written on it. They're to wear white garments. The 24 elders are clad in white. The martyrs are given white robes. Um the son of man is seen on a white cloud. He returns on a white horse in Revelation 19. God is seated on a white throne in Revelation 20. I mean, white symbolizes uh, the people of God or God himself or um, something existing in right relationship with him. So it, it, it's just really difficult. Uh, then you're thinking, okay, he's got uh, a bow. Well, God is pictured or Jesus is pictured in Revelation 1 as having a sword out of his mouth. Why is it not a sword? So you have like the Par- Parthians that it might be that made war against the Romans. So honestly, it is a, it's a difficult thing to think through. Um, I think if it is the gospel going forward, um, I think it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's an opinion worthy of our attention because the gospel does go forward. That's why there's martyrs, right. Mm-hmm. As the fifth seal. Um, if it's a uh, judgment, it makes sense because I don't know if the initial audience reading this would have thought, oh, that's definitely Jesus without using other language to make it very clear that it's Jesus himself. It doesn't say the son of man. Right. So, um, yeah, that's, you, that's where I land. Nowhere land, I guess. There's even a third option there is that some people see this not as 
Christ or just conquering nations, they kind of see it as false teachers uh, mm-hmm. and therefore being in, in imitation of Christ, if you will, uh, bringing a false gospel. And the, the reason they say that is because Matthew 24, 5, Jesus is saying at this, at, you know, when the end is coming, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And so some people even see that view of it. And so, you know, all of those things kind of uh, in the cauldron of, of understanding there, um, they do make it difficult to understand exactly what this white horse is. But I think what you said a minute ago is absolutely right. Like while there may be a little bit of confusion on this one, there's no doubt what Revelation 19, the white the rider and the white horse there is Jesus. Yeah, and, and the reason there's confusion, right? I think we've outlined why there's confusion about the white rider, but between the different takes, what is clear in the seven seals being opened or broken is that there's increasing persecution. And uh, if it is the gospel, well, we can assume that with the gospel going out, there is an increasing persecution. So it could be the gospel going out. um, or, Or if it's just not the gospel going out and it's just persecution, that doesn't mean the gospel is not going out. Right. right. Because there's martyrs in the fifth seal. So that's why there's a struggle and like an exact opinion here, um, not only because of the symbols, but because both quite literally still um, uh, uh, neither one misses the point of the progression of persecution in the passage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and that and, and the word you use there is absolutely right. There is that there is a progression of there's a, there's a progression of judgment that is coming here in these first four horsemen. Um, and so I, I think that, that we often think of the wrath of God being this boom instant thing that is uh, going to happen in one moment, and it will at the very end. But there is a progressive wrath that you see of God. I mean, even in Romans 1, he turns mm. people over to themselves. And that, yeah. that is the wrath of God being revealed. Uh, in create or in mankind that's the very words that are used right this is the wrath of god being revealed amongst mankind or in mankind or unto mankind um yeah that that's great um i I think we just need to be reminded that you know you're gonna see some of our frameworks here worked out and so um uh cory help me if i'm characterizing you wrongly here but we see a lot of similarity between the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, a lot of similarity. Um, Not that they're the exact same thing, but um, they're referring, we think, help me out here to um, progressive persecution throughout the church age. Now that Christ has ascended until Christ returns and enacts his final decisive wrath against mankind um, with those that have trusted him being sealed um, from that decisive wrath. Um, And so uh, I think as Christians, we just need to be prepared for that. Um, You know, uh, Christians in John's day that he was writing to were experiencing tribulation. And maybe for us, at least if you're listening in uh, America, uh, it seems like tribulation could be coming in unique ways that we haven't experienced yet. Um, But that's not to say that there's not tribulation happening all around the world. And so it's not truly believers in America right now are in a unique space and there were not 
uh, experiencing physical persecution, because that's really characterized in many ways the life of the church um, since the ascension of Christ. And so we can expect, as Jesus told us, persecution to, um, uh, we think, um, continue and even gradually become uh, worse um, and, and, and increase. So you want to go ahead and go to the, the fifth seal? Um, or do you just want to summarize second, third, and fourth real fast? Yeah, I, I think that'd be good for us to, um, you know, whenever, whenever we're seeing this here, the, the, the red horse, I think obviously looks, um, at the idea of war. Jesus said in Matthew 24, six, that they would, they would hear wars and rumors of wars. Uh, and thankfully, like we've been protected, um, in our country, like we don't really, I think maybe the generation has has uh, grown up that doesn't understand wars um, because we haven't actively participated in them. Now, now my generation, like some of them went to Iraq and all of those kind of things. But as far as war on our soil, like my generation, your generation has not understood what that's like. Um, but there will be immense amount of bloodshed uh, in war, and and I think that's that's what the redness of the, the horse symbolizes there is that it's, it's very bloody and it's, it's going to be devastating. And so war will ravage, um, ravage mankind until Christ returns. Like there's always going to be war. There's, there's never going to be true peace until Christ returns. Um, then, then I think that this uh, black horse is economic disaster. Um, but, in that, it says John heard a, a voice among the four living creatures that said a, a quart of wheat for denarius and three quarts of barley for denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. Two things I want to mention there is one, a quart, uh, um, a quart of wheat um, would be enough to feed a man a day. And a denarius was a day's wage. And so, but a three quarts of barley would be enough to feed an average family, but still took a day's wage. So the idea is that the economic disaster has happened and it's going to take everything you have just to sustain life, which would be another result of war. Like economic disaster is always a result of war. I mean, I guess if you went back to World War II, you could say that in, in some ways uh, war was good for the American economy, but then those countries in Europe, it was terrible. Uh, it destroyed their economy. And so again, you, you're going to see this rising and falling of, of economies. I mean, that what, what's represented here is like 800% inflation because that is not, um, <laughs> that is not normal even for the first century, uh, what would happen there. And so um you just have those those fluctuating economies over the course of time that are going to be sometimes good and sometimes bad. But, you know, we just need to understand that that's going to be normative um, through through this time. Um, and then the last one is the sword, the famine and the pestilence um, and that death is going to come given authority over a fourth of the earth. And so uh, I think it's important to see that in all of those things, they are, they are given like the, this authority. So the bow and the crown was given to him and the red horse came and its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. 
And so like none of these things are happening outside the sovereignty of God. Like he still has control of all things. And even whenever we get to this, the, the fourth rider and you have this death in Hades and it was given authority, it was given authority over a fourth of the earth. Um, there is authority given from God for those things to happen. And yet there's still limitation because in the, in the economic disaster, it says, do not harm the oil and wine. Like God didn't allow everything to be wiped out. He didn't allow all mankind to die. He said a fourth of the earth. And so there is both judgment and some mercy and limitation uh, in those, in those riders that are coming out and these things that happen between the first and second coming of Christ. So God can restrict within his sovereignty uh, the terror that happens upon humanity to whatever extent he wants. We see that in the book of Job, right? You can do this, but you can't do this to Job, right? Mm -hmm. And so you see that in this case as well. Um, I want to go back just for a second, if I can, and I know sure. you're, you're progressing ahead. Um, but just to consider for a moment, that word conquer again of, and I got to go back to the first horse, but the word conquer is not only used of what Christ, the conquering lamb has done by virtue of his um, uh, crucifixion, resurrection and ascension, but is promised to all who do in fact believe upon the name, the Lord Jesus Christ to him who conquers, I will give him the fruit of the tree of life to him who conquers. He will be given to him who conquers to him who conquers. Mm -hmm. There's not a woe mentioned of the first horse. There's woes mentioned of every other horse. There's not right. one mentioned of the first horse. That's kind of unique as well, right? It is. Um, so once again, that's just tricky. I mean, I'm just going back to what... So you may be convincing me back the other way now. I may be convincing <laughs> you back the other way, man. Uh, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's hard. There was one more thing I was going to say about that, why it might not be. Um, but yeah. Sorry, go right ahead. Yeah, keep going on what you're talking about. Well, I mean, I don't know that I have much else to say about those four those four horsemen. Just that, just that the wrath of God is is progressive as it comes. You know, it's it's not one of these things. It's one and done. And I I think um, for those that are listening, it would be good for you to take this chapter and sit get two different Bibles. Sit down with this chapter and Matthew 24, mm -hmm. and and see the similarities between those two because I think they really do parallel one another. And I think that will help bring some clarity for you, even in this white horse discussion that we're having, uh, because there's some that use that, that use that chapter as an argument for that white horse being the gospel and the conquering through that. There are others that use the white horse as an argument um, from Matthew 24, that it's, the it's a false gospel that goes out and conquers people and deceives them. And so like, you know, Trent, you and I don't have the market cornered on Revelation. I don't think uh, neither one of us would claim that. And uh, so, get your. We Bible. can make Revelation really confusing. Yeah, for sure we could. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, I just encourage everybody to get your Bible and let the Spirit lead you and how to how to understand that because we don't have any special skills other than digging into the word allowing the spirit to guide us and looking at scholars that we respect. And so anybody can do that. Yeah. Why Matthew 24, Mark 13, what's, what's happened in Matthew 24, Mark 13. So why, why would uh, that well, be such a significant 
passage. They were asking Jesus when the end, when the signs of the end of the age. Yeah. And this is the very last little bit of Jesus's teaching, really, almost right? yeah. all of that discourse before he would die. And he's warning them to be watchful um, uh, because he will one day uh, return as a, a, a coming judge, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, all right. Well, why don't we get to the fifth seal? Fifth seal yeah. is, uh, as it mentions in verse nine, uh, during the opening of the fifth seal, John sees under the altar the souls of those that had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Uh, they cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So um, without getting maybe into too much detail, uh, these are individuals. I think we would agree throughout the course of history, not necessarily one particular martyrdom moment, but throughout the course of history who have testified to the truthfulness of who Jesus is and what he has done and have been killed uh for that very reason, right? They have died for their faith and um, they are uh, awaiting uh, the the vindication uh, and vengeance of the Lord against the oppressors, against the enemies that exist uh, um, in opposition to God, right? And so they say, how long, O Lord, will you wait until you go, O sovereign God, to go and make war against your enemy? Right. Um, So they cry out for God to bring righteous judgment against the earth. Do they not? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, and what does he say to them? So it's kind of interesting. It says, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. So these are witnesses throughout the course of history, dying for their faith, awaiting the I would probably say the resurrection of their bodies and um, even uh, the judgment that is to come as they're awaiting the new heavens and new earth, God to basically say it is finished. I am, I am done. I will um, bring uh, all things to completion and make all things new. And he says, no, you need to rest for a little bit longer. What's he saying there? Like, like what, what's, what's going on? Well, I, I think that's that's the question, right? Like, why uh, he, he's telling them to rest because the full number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete. Like, there's gonna there's gonna be more killed mm-hmm. for their faith, and the time has not come yet for him to avenge them. And so, the question is, why why would God have appointed a number of people to be killed? Well, right? so so maybe two with this. Um, maybe I'm, maybe I don't mean to encroach upon what you're going to say, but, um, we know from the Bible in first Peter that the Lord is patient, not wishing any to perish. And the way in which people come to know him, according to Romans chapter 10 is by the proclamation of the word. And so through the martyrs giving testimony to who Jesus is, people will continue to be saved and he will not complete everything, bringing judgment upon the earth until that last individual that will share the gospel with the final sheep that God is going to bring in the, into the fold um, testifies and is, is persecuted for doing so. Yeah. I mean, uh, the wrath of God is patient. I mean, exactly what you're saying there is that there is something about the testimony of one that is saying Jesus is better than even my life. 
And that's exactly what the martyrs are saying. Like they would, they would say, I will give up my very life, but I will not give up my confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so whenever, whenever somebody um, cl- clings to Christ more than their very life, that is God glorifying, it's Christ honoring. It does give um, both a verbal and a visible testimony to the greatness of God. And so I think that could be used as um, as a way to bring to Christ. But, but I also think I also think what's going on here is there's preparation here because there's an indication that there will be more people martyred for their faith. And so if if John is writing this to the the churches in Asia Minor and by extension to all believers in all churches, like we've got to be prepared for that. Like you and I. Um, all, all the people in our churches, like as believers, we have to be prepared to say, I might be one of those people. Now I can remember a young lady. I don't know if she listens to this or not, but she was in my youth group uh, whenever I was at in Rogers. Her name was was Bethany Britton. And um, she believed uh, with all her heart at that time um, that she would be martyred for her faith. Um, I don't know why, like, I don't, I'm not sure we ever had that discussion. Why? Um, she's now a mom of, I think three or four kids married and, uh, and doing great things, serving the Lord, but you know, that may still be the case and it could be the case for anybody who's a believer is that. And so I think there's some preparation here for us is that, we might be ones that's called upon to give our life for, for our faith and for Christ. And so God, God has not promised us. Would you say this? God has not promised us that we will, by virtue of our relationship with him, escape being killed for our faith. Right. Right. He's not, he's not promised us that Um, he's promised us eternal life, not an easy life. Right. He's promised us um, uh, pleasures forevermore, not, uh, not the, escape from persecution in the present. So um, you, you see, you know, throughout history, you have stories of different people who have been persecuted for their faith. I mean, you have stories, of course, in the Bible, like Stephen. Um, and uh, y- you have stories throughout the Reformation time period. If anyone has uh, the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, you have many stories in there of people who gave their lives for the Lord um, under the reign of Bloody Mary right? Um, mm-hmm. Killing almost 300 Protestants during a short period of time when she was in power. Um, she was bloody for how much she killed and how short she, how short a time she was actually in power. And um, there's different stories that I always have remembered. You know, there's Hugh Latimer and Thomas Ridley and, yeah. you know, they're standing being burned and um, the fire doesn't consume them. And yet they encourage one another with, you know, stand tall and play the man, <laughs> right? It's yeah. like, oh man, like that's a, that is a man, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and then you have stories of, I think it was John Rogers, who's escorted in front of his family um, yeah. to be killed, uh, looking at one of his uh, newborn um, children he had never seen because he had been kept in prison uh, for his faith and uh, was uh, asked if he would recant. And he told the executioner that which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have, of course, the story, and I can't remember the guy's name in Fox's Book of Martyrs that... Uh, was uh, an illiterate father who uh, paid a tutor to teach his son uh, how to read so that he could read to the family the Bible. And you had a Catholic minister 
with him as he's being executed, asking him to recant of his belief. And he turns to the Catholic minister and says, have you not read the text? And it's so yeah. funny because he can't read the text. Right. Yeah. So he's, he's heard the truth of God's word and he says, no, I'm, I'm ready to die for this. Right. And when you really think about that uh, and if, if, if what is true about this passage is that there are martyrs crying out to the Lord, we're ready for the new heavens and new earth and for you to avenge our blood. Uh, named among them is Stephen from the Bible, other mm-hmm. martyrs that we have within the Bible, early church people we've never met before that have died for their faith in the gladiatorial ring and stories that we read in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Also, we have people in North Korea right now that we can't even share that they're there through the IMB that are being martyred, even probably today, that are shouting out to the Lord, we're ready for the new heavens, new earth. You know, I think that's important too, Trent, is to to remind everybody that the, the martyrs didn't just happen in the 1500s or in the Bible times like it's happened today. Um, i Sherry and I have started taking our boys through a book. Uh, it's called DC Talk. Actually, put it out years ago. Jesus, it's Freak. Jesus freaks, yeah. And um, and it's a story. It's story of martyrs too, but it's not just stories of biblical martyrs and stories of martyrs of the Reformation. Like it's stories of martyrs, like a fifteen-year-old in Russia, and you know, a seventeen-year-old in Indonesia, and and all of these things. And it's it's modern-day martyrs, and 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 we have to realize that that's going on today. It's not, it's not something that's um, foreign to the Christian experience. So this is something, a way in which we can, I think the, the Bible talks about the church being a place of encouragement uh, as we see the day of Christ drawing near to serve one another up to, toward good works and see to it as Hebrews 12, 13, 15 says um, to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, right? So the church is a place in which we are given a gift uh, in one another that we might encourage one another to remain faithful. And that's exactly like the story of Hugh Latimer and Thomas Ridley. They encourage one another to hold to their faith, even to the point of death. Yeah. Hey, let's go to the last uh, seal that's broken. Not the last seal that's broken. Sorry, the last seal that's broken in chapter six. That is the sixth seal out of seven seals. And, um, Corey, Corey, help me think through this. I'm just going to describe what it says. And we've only got a few minutes here before we close. If we can try to kind of summarize this, um, help me think through this. There's a great earthquake at the sixth seal. Sun becomes black. Full moon becomes like blood. The stars of the sky fall to the earth. A fig tree like a fig tree sheds its winter fruit. Uh, the sky vanishes like a scroll that's being rolled up, Right. Every mountain island removed from its place, like it just seems like utter chaos, destruction. Everything's happening all at once. It's not just uh, um, one fourth of the people dying, but it's like there's no sky anymore. Like, where to go, right? And then it says the kings of the earth, the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They call to the mountains and the rocks. And I think this is important. They don't call to the creator of their mountains and rocks. Mm -hmm. They call to the mountains and the rocks. And they say, fall on us. Hide us from the face of him. That is God who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Before we get to that answer, what is this a picture of? Like what is happening in this sixth seal here? 
Well, I think one thing we need to understand is that this is kind of stock apocalyptic language. Like if you went back to the Old Testament, you would see these kind of symbols being used of the judgment of God. Now, whether whether the sky is literally going to be rolled up or not, I can't tell you for sure. But sure. but that seems to be also like many other things that we've seen is symbolic of this unraveling of creation. Like there's just this um, earthquake and a sky quake, if you will. Um, and and remember the context, like these, these churches in Asia Minor that John's writing to, like they've experienced earthquake, like they know the devastation of it. And you've just said, not only uh, is, is the earth going to quake, um, but the sky is going to be rolled up and every mountain and island is going to be removed from its place. Um, like that's terrifying that everything you know to be solid is gone. Um, and so the, the, the stability of the world is undermined and, and this natural order necessary for life is just completely unraveling. And so I think you've got that in the first, in verses 12 through 14. And then in verses 15 through 17, you, you have this undoing of the ungodly. Like those people who have consistently rejected Christ and, and the message of the gospel what you emphasize there is so important is that they would rather have mountains and boulders fall on them than look into the wrath of God. The face of the lamb in wrath is more terrifying than their own death. Like they don't, they don't even want to see him because you, I mean, you can imagine like whenever, whenever we feel conviction of sin, like, you know that God sees completely through you, right? Um, and in those moments, the thing that they have denied, their own sin will be made so evident to them. They're, they're going to be just like Isaiah, who says, woe is me, for I am undone. Except they're not crying out for help. They're crying out to be shielded, to be shaded from the wrath of God. So and so... Do you see any parallel here between um, uh, Revelation, the, the sixth seal, and what Peter seems to talk about in chapter three of Second Peter? He says this. He says, uh, "Don't overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord is one day. Sorry, the Lord one day is is a thousand years. A thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness. He's patient toward you, not wishing any should perish. So the martyrs are saying, when are you going to come and avenge? And He's being patient, not wishing any to perish." He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, the truth is in First Thessalonians chapter five, is it says it doesn't come like a thief in a sense to believers because they're watchful and they're ready, right? right? But to those who are not ready, it will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done, it will be exposed. So those that pursued vain things are exposed for who they are. And uh, the, the heavenly bodies, the stars will be kind of torn open. And it says, since all these things are to be thus dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So it then takes us to, okay, there's a difference between the people of God and the people who are desiring to be shielded from the wrath of God who won't be. Um, yeah. And those very people in Revelation 6 say, uh, who could stand through this? They don't mm -hmm. think anyone can stand. They, they, they don't think that there's any way 
out um, of the experiencing the wrath of God. Now, the truth is many, many of them may or may not have heard the gospel message of um, salvation, that there is one who actually bore the wrath in the place of believers. All who trust in Christ, the wrath has already been taken care of because it was poured out on Christ himself, right? Mm -hmm. But for those who do not shield themselves um, and, and cast themselves upon the mercy seat of Christ in their life, they will, they will, they will face the, the, the righteous wrath of God um, before their death and eternally in death. Um, and so that's what they're experiencing. They say, well, well who could stand? Well, what Revelation chapter seven is going to tell us that there are people who can stand um, and it's not by virtue of their own strength, but it's through Christ sealing them, keeping them his own. Uh, what should we say to this? Because I think this passage, as it seems to progressively point us to more and more persecution, it gets to this one point of saying, but there is one who can stand or there are a people who can stand and it's Christ's people. Yeah. Amen. Anything yeah, you want to say as we it, close up? Well, just again, just to remind everybody that um, chapter six, you've got you've got this progressive wrath uh, and, and redemption. Um, you know, it's not just wrath; it, you've got the redemption of mankind that is coming as well. Um, then you've got this intensification, and then there will be that time uh, whenever. Christ returns and both brings his wrath uh, for his enemies and the redemption for his people. And uh, we look, that's why it can be both a great and terrible day of the Lord. Yeah. And for all of you who are listening, maybe um, you don't have a relationship with the Lord or you have questions about what that might, what that might mean. You can send us a DM or you can find a local gospel preaching church and ask them the same exact questions. We'd love to talk with you because the truth is, is that by no uh, um, uh, means of our own power, uh, uh, perfection, uh, popularity, whatever word you can think of about our own selves, have we been looked upon the Lord um, uh, in, w- with his kindness? Um, all who believe in the name of the Jesus, name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved um, from the Amen. least of these to the lost, to the lowly, from kings to uh, um, the, the, the lowest people you might even imagine, no matter how you feel about yourself, no matter what you've done, no matter who you've been, um, uh, for those who repent and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be saved and they will not face the wrath to come because Jesus faced it in their place. So we would love to talk with you about that. Um, uh, we speculate on different things about, you know, who in the world is on the white horse in Revelation chapter six. Um, but there are things that we need not to speculate about because the Bible is very clear about, and we'd love to talk with you about that. So Corey, pray for us and uh, let's close this thing out. All right. Father, we thank you once again for your revelation. God, we thank you for the truth. Lord, we thank you for the preparation that it gives us. And Father, we do pray now for those who do not know Christ, God, that you would use your word, um, Lord, that as we talk, Lord, that it might be um, a proclamation, not just of ideas, but it would be a proclamation of the gospel. And we just uh, thank you that there is good news in Jesus Christ. Lord, I I pray and ask that you would uh, be effective by your spirit and bring the lost to salvation, that Christ might be glorified with all the glory that he deserves. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. Thank you for being with us this week. And I want to encourage you to uh, come back and be with us next week as we answer the question uh, that chapter six poses, who can stand? That will be the topic of Revelation chapter seven. We'll see you then. And and maybe you've had questions about who the 144,000 are. We're going to talk about that. We will. (laughs) All right.